Well, we are celebrating the Reformation today as we do each year on the Sunday nearest October 31st. As I mentioned earlier, it was on that day in 1517 that Martin Luther, a Catholic priest, nailed 95 theses or arguments protesting, that's where Protestant Reformation comes from, protesting the um, errors that existed in the Roman Catholic Church. And he nailed those to the doors of a cathedral in a town called Wittenberg, Germany. The Protestant Reformation spread all over Europe as believers began to reclaim the most important doctrines of the Scriptures that had been neglected or even abused in their day. One of the major slogans that came out of the Reformation is the subject of our message this morning. Uh, It's one of the five solas. The word sola means only or alone. And this today we're going to concentrate on sola gratia, which means by grace alone. It's part of five slogans that you saw in that little video Uh, before I got up here, that the Reformers focused on. It became the theme of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. The Scripture is the ultimate authority in the church. We still maintain that today. Solus Christus, Christ alone, in whom we have our salvation. Grace alone, as I mentioned, which is given by faith alone, sola fide, and all of this, is summed up in the fifth one, sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And we could walk through each one of those themes in a sermon, of course, pointing to the rich truths that are found in these slogans from Scripture. But today I want to focus on sola gratia, by grace alone. And this is something the Reformers taught often on and shared with us its importance in their writings. So today it's going to be a little bit more. We've been in the book of Ecclesiastes, if you're visiting with us. Uh, We're working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're kind of right at the midway point in that book. Uh, But this morning we're, we're going away from that for a week to focus on this theme from Ephesians 2. And this will be very much a doctrinal message today. So you may feel it a little heavier than normal because we're just going to be looking at truth after truth after truth. But these are important truths. These are things that we believe with our whole hearts as Christians. These are things we cannot be saved without believing. And these are things that when we talk about having a hill to die on, this is one of those things that we would die for as a follower of Jesus Christ that we are saved by grace alone. Martin Luther was taught that how you come to salvation is through the church and the church's sacraments. To constantly come to the church and help yourself of these sacraments, that they would make you more and more righteous. And so Luther would constantly go and confess his sins and do penance. He would constantly attend the Mass In the medieval Roman Catholic Church, he's devoting himself diligently to that system in hopes of his salvation. And he was doing that so often that once his confessor told him to go away, said, Martin, you're you're coming too many times. You don't need to come that often. 
Martin Luther had a tender conscience, and he, he wrestled with the question, what is my best? How do I know that I've done enough to please God? And it was Luther's own study of Scripture that revealed to him that salvation was not what he was working toward, but was something that God gives freely by his grace. Let me read to you what Luther describes in terms of his own understanding when he came to that truth that salvation was by grace alone. This is what he wrote, quote, Then I began to understand the righteousness of God as a righteousness by which a just man lives as by a gift of God. That means by faith. I realized that it was to be understood this way. The righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel, namely the so-called passive righteousness we receive through which God justifies through faith, through grace and mercy. Luther goes on to say, Now I felt as if I had been born again. The gates had been opened and I had entered paradise itself. What a sweet description of a man who comes to understand the truth of the gospel by grace alone. And as I mentioned before, Luther came upon this through his own study of the Scripture. And what I hope for us to do this morning, as we look very briefly at Ephesians chapter 2 in the time that we have, what I hope to do is that we will see again this truth that Martin Luther saw in the pages of Scripture that teaches us of our salvation by grace alone. And what a beautiful gift to remind us. What a, what a precious legacy that the Reformers gave us that, that is as applicable today as it was in the 16th century when Luther and these other Reformers began to see it for themselves. So look with me this morning at Ephesians 2. What do we find here in the Scriptures? The Apostle Paul teaches us what the Reformers understood as the biblical teaching of salvation by grace alone. Let me read again these first three verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul begins Ephesians 2 with a description of death, that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. And this should point us, shouldn't it, all the way back to the first book of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, to those first early chapters where we read about Adam's fall, the condemnation, the punishment that fell upon him. As the judgment of God fell on Adam and Eve in that garden in Genesis 3, we know that that death that they began to experience included both physical death, right? They, they would die. Adam, 
Adam, from the dust you came, to the dust you will go. Physical death, but it also included spiritual death. It was instantly, in that moment, a separation from God in which Adam and Eve and their children would no longer have a right relationship with God. Now, we no longer do the things that are pleasing to Him. We are dead people in the sight of God, able to do nothing righteous on our own. After all, what can dead people do? What can dead people do to give themselves life? You ever been to a funeral? Dead person doesn't get out of the coffin. They are unable to give themselves life. To be dead in our sins is to be helpless. To have no control. To have lost everything. But spiritual death is not just some neutral state where we're just kind of floating there in in nothingness. As Paul describes here, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We follow the prince of the power of the air. We are sons of disobedience. We are children of wrath. It's not just that as a dead spiritual person, you're doing nothing. In fact, you are doing something, aren't you? You're following the ways of the evil one. In other words, we are God's enemies. And note what Paul says here. There's there's a universality to this death. It affects everyone. Everyone is dead. And even those who are now in Christ are described in verse 3 as ones who were dead. You and I were dead like everyone else. No one is immune to this spiritual death. Everyone's a part of it. So, to address this issue of death, it will require the grace of God to not only bring us back from the dead, but to also transform us from being enemies to being friends. In fact, it's more than that, isn't it? Because when God's grace falls on us, we are not just his friends. We're his family. When we come by the grace of God, we are his sons and daughters. And we'll see in a minute what that means. So, again, the Apostle Paul begins Ephesians 2 describing our death. That we are dead in our sins. We are enemies of God. But then he goes on to explain salvation by grace alone. So look with me at verses 4 through 7. And I'll tell you what. Whenever Paul writes the word B-U-T, there's usually something really special that comes afterward. And that is the case here. You are dead, but... God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. 
together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to point out here, you probably noticed it because I'm kind of emphasizing the words, but there are phrases here in these verses that Paul repeats, and it's actually not just in these few verses in Ephesians 2. If you were to look at all of Paul's writings, you would see these words repeated all over the place. It's the, it's the, it's the little phrases that he, he says we are with Christ or that we are in Christ. And, and again, if you have more time... Take the time to look through Paul's letters in the New Testament. These phrases come up over and over and over again. And what he's pointing to in these phrases is what theologians have called our union with Christ. We have been united to Christ. The reformer John Calvin has a wonderful description of this doctrine. He fleshes out further what Paul's describing when he says that we're in Christ. John Calvin writes this. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, that all he has suffered, done for the salvation of the human race, remains useless and of no value to us. As long as he's outside. As long as he's separated. Therefore, Calvin writes, to share with us what he has received from the Father, salvation, he has to become ours and dwell within us. For this reason, he is called our head and our firstborn among many brethren. We also, in turn, are said to be engrafted into him and to have put Christ on. For as I have said, Calvin writes, all that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. It is true that we obtain this by faith. Unquote. What Calvin is saying. If Christ is not united to you, then everything he's done, all the benefits, all the wonderful acts of salvation, they are nothing to you. But if you have been united to Christ, then everything Christ has is yours. All that he has, he freely gives to the one he has been united to. So, Paul describes in Ephesians 2, you are dead in your trespasses, your enemies of God, sons of disobedience, but God, in His rich mercy, has united you to Christ. You are with Christ. You are in Christ. And everything that Christ has is yours. This is the grace of God that brings us to Christ. Verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not your own doing, dead people. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We have been united to Christ now, and it is by the grace of God through faith, and there is no boasting. I think that's a very specific and a very needed statement that Paul makes. That when God's grace comes to us, it's not based on our works. That's what Luther was trying to do, remember? He was trying to work toward his salvation. But he discovered through reading the scriptures, no, it's not by my work. It's by the grace of God alone. And because it's by the grace of God alone, there is no room for Christian pride or arrogance. There's no room for someone who says, look at me. Look how special I am because I am a Christian and you are not. There's no dependence on our own abilities, our own skills, our own gifts. There is no boasting in the one who has received the grace of God alone. What does it mean to be united to Christ? I want to kind of drill into this a little bit in our time remaining. What do we actually get from Christ? For those who have come by the grace of God to be united with him, what what is the result of that? Well, Calvin's writings also give us a description of that. Calvin calls it a twofold grace of God, that there are, there are two main blessings, two primary blessings that come because we are united to Christ. But first, before we look at the blessings, what does it mean to be united? To be united is to have union with Christ. It's a specific relationship. It's a unique relationship. It's a, it's a relationship in which the grace of God has bound us to Christ. And when you look at the Bible from beginning to end, especially at the Old Testament, this is what God is moving towards when his son comes to earth and lives and dies and then is resurrected. He's coming to unite the people to him. Those, he describes us, especially as Gentiles, Paul describes us as being far off from God. And Jesus brings us near. This has been the plan of God all along. He's coming to unite his people. And this is unveiled in the work of Christ. When he comes, this special relationship that binds people to him. I think maybe the closest illustration or analogy of this It's not a perfect analogy, but it's that of our marriage relationships, where a husband and a wife are united together in marriage. When I married Deborah uh, 29 years ago, not today, it's not our anniversary, 29 years ago, um, we made vows, like most of you did at your wedding. And in those vows, usually there's some kind of a phrase like this, all that I possess, I give to you. Some of you remember saying something like that, maybe? 
In that same way, this relationship with Jesus Christ, this union, results in all that Christ has, all the things that he possesses, being given to the one to whom he's united. The one in whom God has given his grace. What is grace? I think John Calvin, again, is very helpful. He, he describes it this way, quote, Christ was given to us by God's generosity to be grafted and possessed by us in faith. By partaking of him, we receive a double grace. Here's that double grace he talked about. There are two gifts in this, namely, one, that being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness, we may have in heaven, instead of a judge, a gracious Father. Amen? And secondly, a second blessing, being sanctified by Christ's Spirit, we may cultivate blamelessness and purity of life. Unquote. Let's unpack that just a little bit more. That first blessing, that first gift of our union in Christ, that gift of being blameless before God. So he's no longer our judge, but he's our father. We describe that as the doctrine of justification. That means that we are made right before God. We are not guilty before God. In many ways, this was one of the most important doctrines that the Reformers seized on. They taught it. They clung to it. Even when they suffered greatly for it, some of them died for this doctrine. Luther would describe this doctrine as the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. Calvin described this doctrine as the hinge upon which all true religion turns. It was so important to them to understand this doctrine correctly. What does it mean to be justified? This first great blessing of union with Christ. What does it mean to be made right with God? Well, there's some helpful doctrinal statements and catechisms that are out there. One of those is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, written primarily for children because it's easy to learn, short answers. Question number 33 in that, in that uh, catechism, gives us a very brief statement of the doctrine. Here's what it says. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins, amen, and accepts us righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of God Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So that catechism there describes this as an act of God. This is something God does. God declares you are righteous. When you are united with Christ by his grace, God declares in that moment you are in my sight, 
are righteous. Now, that's not because we are actually righteous, right? Anybody sin in the last week? Yep. But because Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to you. And you receive this by faith alone. This is what we call in doctrine, we call it a forensic benefit. Legal. It's where you are legally declared righteous because of the righteousness of another. Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate this again for you. There's a church uh, that I read about where every Sunday, kids would come up and the pastor would ask them questions from that shorter catechism that I just read that one thing from. So one day they got to this question 33, and a little boy stood up and answered the question perfectly, memorized it, recited it word for word, you know, got his stars, you know, got his Awana badge, yeah. And the pastor asked him, now tell me what that means. Uh-oh, you know. A lot of times, you know, kids are great at memorizing stuff, but, you know, do, do they actually get it, right? Well, this is what the boy said. He couldn't have been more than eight or nine years old at the time. He said, well, this is what my daddy taught me it means. It means I have a bank account that has no money in it. And Jesus has a bank account with lots of money in it. And he takes my bank account with no money, and he puts his money in my bank account. He gets it, right? That's what happens when Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. That's the first benefit of what it means to be united to Jesus. You might be thinking, you know, I, we just read those verses from Ephesians 2. I don't remember seeing the word justified in there. How, how, is, how is he getting that out of Ephesians 2? Well, notice something that Paul describes here back in our text in verse 6, where he says that you are raised up with him and has seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, Paul's referring to Jesus' resurrection. He's been raised up. And to his ascension, that he's been exalted to the right hand of God. But what does it mean to be resurrected? How does resurrection relate to our justification? Well, Paul talked about that as well back in Romans chapter 4, verse 22 to 25. Let me just read it for you. Here's what he says. And he's talking about Abraham's faith. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who was raised from the dead, our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Paul's making a link here in Romans for between the resurrection of Jesus and our justification. How is it related to each other? One other passage, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. Listen to these words. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And here's the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. That's his incarnation, Jesus becoming a baby. 
vindicated by the Spirit. That word vindicated is the same word as justified. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now follow me here. Paul says in 1 Timothy that Jesus was vindicated or literally justified. Then he goes on in Romans 4 to tell us that his resurrection was for our justification. Christ knew that he himself was condemned and punished for our sins on the cross. He was sinless. He received the punishment and condemnation of God that we should have received, right? And he died on that cross bearing the judgment of God. Yet at the same time, we know he was blameless. He didn't sin. He is the one, the only one, who was truly righteous. And so death could not hold him. In his resurrection, he was justified. He was shown to be right with God in his resurrection. Does that make sense? Paul, in other places, will describe that if you are united with Christ, you died with Christ. You were raised with Christ. Romans 6 is one of those places. So back here in Ephesians 2, verse 6, you are seated with him in the heavenly places. If Jesus died and was raised and justified, you too have died in him, raised in him, justified with him. That's the first blessing of our union with Christ. I think this is an important doctrine for many of us too because I'd imagine that a lot of you are like me, that even though we've come to Christ, even though we've been united to Christ, we still struggle with sin. Anybody still struggle with sin here? I do. There are temptations in our life. We often succumb to them. There are things that weigh us down. Sometimes they even cause us to doubt our faith. Anybody ever been there? But do you not know, brothers and sisters, that because you have been united to Christ, that God looks on you in the righteousness of Jesus, clothed in His righteousness. He doesn't see you and I as one who is condemned. He sees us as one of His children, clothed in Jesus' righteousness, right before Him. And that is all because of His grace. The grace given to you in Jesus. The grace that was very, very costly to Him. But free to us. Justified in Christ by the grace of God alone. Second blessing, quickly, of being in union with Christ is not only the doctrine of justification, but now we call the doctrine of sanctification. We see this here in, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, most specifically in our last verse, in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So not only do we receive 
righteousness of Jesus on our behalf, counted righteous, not guilty in the sight of God, but also now we receive sanctification. And what is that? How would we define that? Well, hey, I'll I'll refer back to the shorter catechism again. They have a good definition. You ready? Sanctification is described as the, the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. I'll say that again. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. In Christ, Paul wrote in Ephesians, we have been made new creatures, right? 2 Corinthians 5, that is, actually. We have been renewed. We've been transformed so that there is, in fact, an actual change going on in us all the time. And we are now able to live more and more and more according to the commandments of God, which we continue to pursue with our hearts. Ephesians 2.10 again. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works. This is what you should be about now in your life. Good works. This is what we should be seeking after with our lives. Now let me be clear. Our good works do not justify us. That was Martin Luther's mistake from his Roman Catholic teaching, right? They do not, we're not saved by these good works. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone. But that faith is never actually alone because it's accompanied by good works, by works that demonstrate we are united to Christ, that show we are new creatures in Christ, that, that reflect our gratefulness to what God has done for us. This is a precious gift of God as well, the gift of sanctification, to continue in that sanctification, to be renewed after the image of God as we live on this earth as his children. Now note that Ephesians 2.10 says something interesting. It says our good works are prepared beforehand. Did you notice that? Now there's a tendency among some Christians to say, I'm saved, and therefore, I don't need to do anything more. I got what I needed. And some people lean in that direction. Other people lean in the opposite direction and emphasize good work so much that it seems to get into a place where maybe good works are necessary for them to be saved. I think, I think Ephesians 2.10 corrects both of those errors. Good works will flow from the believer because we are created to do them. They're the natural outflow of one who has been made a new creature in Christ. At the same time, 
Even our works, did you catch this? Even our works are prepared or decreed beforehand by God. So what? Can't boast in those either. Right? Can't boast in our justification. Can't boast in our sanctification. It's all of God. These are things God has created for us to walk in them. Now, I hope you see in this passage that we are reminded again of what these reformers understood. Salvation is by grace alone. That moves us from a state of being dead and enemies of God to being united to Christ with all the benefits of Christ given to us, our justification, Jesus' righteousness credited to our account, and our sanctification, God working through us good works. And the result of all this is that no one should boast. One author wrote that this phrase, grace alone or sola gratia, means that, quote, human beings have no claim upon God. That is, God owes us nothing except just punishment for our many and varied willful sins. By insisting on grace alone, the reformers were denying that human methods, human techniques, human strategies in themselves could ever bring anyone to faith. It is grace alone expressed through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ, that releases us from our bondage to sin, that raises us from death to spiritual life, unquote. I'll ask the praise team to come on up to the front for our final song. As they're coming, if you're a believer this morning in Jesus, I encourage you this week, especially today, take a little time and reflect on this doctrine of salvation by grace alone. Read through these verses again multiple times, and just meditate on them. Because it will remind you again and again that our salvation, our new life, is only because of God's grace. And that will cause you and I to give thanks and to embrace even more the God who loves us in Jesus Christ and saved us in Jesus Christ. If you're a visitor here today at Heather Hills, maybe you've heard this before, and maybe you're reflecting on what it means to be a Christian. Maybe that's something that you've never made personal to become a follower of Jesus. I would encourage you also to go back and read these verses again. There's a a Bible right in front of you in the pew. If you don't have a Bible, just take that one with you and read again. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and read it over and over and reflect and pray on that, what it means to be united to Jesus and to receive him. And I pray that you would receive all the benefits of Christ by his grace, even the forgiveness of your sins.
These are great truths, heavy truths, deep and rich doctrines that have stood now for hundreds and hundreds of years that the church continues to embrace and teach because they come from God, from his word. May this doctrine of sola gratia be an encouragement to us today and always be a bedrock at Heather Hills that God's grace saves us and it will sustain us all the way to the end. And I pray that that will be an encouragement to you in the weeks and months and years to come until our Lord Jesus returns and takes us to heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing a song of response to the Lord about his wonderful grace.